Hello and welcome to Endurance Minded. It's the podcast that looks at the psychological and emotional components of endurance sports and how they impact performance. I'm your host, Taylor Thomas, founder and coach at TEC. And on this episode, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Kyle McRae. Kyle is the author of The Mental Cyclist. Uh, The Mental Cyclist is a book that's designed to help any cyclist develop deep self-expertise, take on any challenge, and have an amazing experience on the bike. Um, The book is written uh, as a workbook designed to help athletes work through their barriers, their challenges, uh, understand what drives them, what motivates them, um, and what has the potential to keep them from their full potential, all of which are topics uh, that we try to address here on Endurance Minded. Uh, So Kyle and I had no shortage of things to talk about. A few of the topics that we cover are things like uh, guilt versus shame, um, what role should fun play uh, in our endeavors. Um, we talk about what Kyle calls the comparison trap, which is comparing ourselves to others and how damaging that can be. Uh, we talk about the mind-body connection. We talk about the difference between logistical and psychological barriers. Um, and we round that out to talk about goal setting. Um, and Kyle outlines um, how athletes can establish their goals, see them through, uh, and have their best experience as athletes. Um, So jam-packed with so much uh, great information. Kyle uh, is entertaining. He's engaging. Uh, The Mental Cyclist is a fantastic book, and uh, I can't recommend it enough. Um, uh, As always, uh, please uh, rate, subscribe, share endurance minded uh with any of your friends the feedback has been great i know i've been saying it on uh, on all of our podcast episodes but i truly appreciate it um continue to keep it coming um and uh rate us subscribe share with your friends uh, as always endurance-minded.com um, you can listen to our past episodes you can also uh, leave us comments Um, and, uh, those have been great. We're using those to base, uh, some of our solo episodes on. So, uh, if there's anything that you would like me to cover, uh, anything you're having challenges with, please go to endurance-minded.com and, uh, and hit us up and let us know, uh, how we can help and, uh, how you can use, uh, endurance minded, uh, as a tool. So, Thanks as always. Uh, I hope you enjoy uh, my conversation with Kyle. We'll put all of his information in the show notes, how you can get the book, his website, uh, access to social media. Um, And uh, I definitely recommend using The Mental Cyclist uh, as a resource to help you um, become the best athlete you can be. Uh, Thanks again. Please enjoy my conversation with Kyle McRae. Before we get started with this week's episode, I'm so excited to announce that we're welcoming Inside Tracker as our first official sponsor to the podcast. As I've talked about at length on the show, my passion is helping other individuals discover the tools, resources, and relationships they need to reach their full potential. It's about more than just getting fit or being in shape for one race. It's about realizing the value in the lifetime pursuit of dedicating yourself to become the best version of you that you can be. So when you do what you love, whether it's running, riding your bike, racing, or just enjoying the great outdoors, you want to do it for life. That's where Inside Tracker can help. As a lifelong athlete who's done everything under the sun, I've gotten blood work done many, many times over the years, and it's always provided critical information. Even when I was feeling great and training hard, my blood work has uncovered critical deficits such as low vitamin D and elevated iron. 
So despite how your training is going or how you're feeling, Inside Tracker helps to uncover specific, individual, and actionable insights that allow you to not only perform better, but feel better and be healthier. Inside Tracker was founded in 2009 by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. Using their patented algorithm, Inside Tracker analyzes your body's data to provide you with a clear picture of what's going on inside of you and to offer you science-backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. Then, Inside Tracker tracks your progress every day, every step of the way, towards reaching your performance goals and living a longer, healthier life. So for a limited time, Endurance Minded listeners can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just visit info.insidetracker.com slash endurance-minded and enter your name at the bottom of the page to take advantage of your 25% discount. Being an athlete is about more than just completing the right workouts. So visit info.insidetracker.com slash endurance-minded today to start taking a proactive approach to understanding what your body needs to perform better and live longer. Kyle, how are you? Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. Lovely to be here. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you are the author of a book called The Mental Cyclist, um, and it is uh, what it sounds like. It is uh, an outline, a journal, a, um, uh, uh, you know, look at the things that get in our way outside of, uh, outside of the physical components of, uh, of training and, and how to, uh, how to address those things. Hopefully I'm, I'm, uh, I'm doing it justice and explaining it correctly. So, um, first and foremost, tell, tell us, um, what, what brought you to, to this book? How did you arrive at thinking about things from the mental component versus or, or in conjunction with the physical piece? Sure. Well, thank that was a, that was a perfect elevator pitch, uh, much smoother than I could have done it. Uh, sp- absolutely spot on. The, the first thing I should probably stress is that I am not a sports psychologist. Um, I don't work with professional athletes. I don't work with athletes at all. Um, I don't work with coaches. I'm just a normal guy in, uh, now in my late 50s um, who I've been a regular, very keen road cyclist for uh, a good number of years. Um, what got me into this was the, the story is in the book and it's, um, it's painful to this day. I, I was living, uh, I think it was 2004. I was living in Provence in the South of France for a year, which was a wonderful place to live. And that's when I really got into road cycling, um, with a, a French friend of mine there, somebody I met there. And, uh, we were in the shadow, literally in the shadow of Mont Ventoux, you know, the, the iconic climb. Uh, Tour de France has just been up it twice this week alone. And throughout that year, I said to myself, I'm going to climb that one day. Now, I'd driven up it many times. Uh, I loved it. I experienced horrendous wind conditions at the top. I experienced the best weather ever, some of the most stunning views. And because it was iconic, I, I just said, I'm, I'm going to do it. And... Towards the end, I had to leave France at the end of August. And we got into August, and the temperature hit uh, it was 35 degrees Celsius, whatever that is in, in your money. 
And I hadn't trained enough, I didn't think. And I was worried about going out with uh, Didier, his, my, my French pal, and all of his um, ultra elite cycling pals. I thought, I'm just going to let them down. And so my, my head kind of exploded, and I, I went through this prolonged, horrible process of talking myself out of it. All the stuff, you know, I, I, I can't do it. I'm not fit enough. Um, I'm not strong enough. My knee hurts. It's far too hot. I can't go out with Diddy and his pals because I'm, I'm just going to let them down. Uh, I'll feel like a failure. They'll push me off the mountain. All that stuff in my head for weeks and weeks until it came to the crunch and uh, I didn't do it. I can't remember on the day there was some other reason and I found an excuse. And I went back to Scotland the next week and kind of beat myself up about it for years um, and did, didn't really understand it. And in those intervening years, I did lots of, uh, had lots of achievements on the, on the bike. And I was just fascinated by what was wrong with me, what was going on in my head that was stopping me from doing something that physically was well within my capability. It, it might be tough. Of course it was going to be tough, but I could do it. And I wasn't getting any younger. I probably wasn't going to get any fitter. So eventually, um, after six or seven years, I dragged a couple of pals of mine, cyclists, to Provence, and uh, we climbed one too, and I absolutely loved it. And the reason I loved it is that in that intervening period, I'd begun to get to know myself a, a bit better. I'd begun to listen to what my mind was telling me when I was cycling, when I was training, and beginning to understand a bit more. And I had one of the best days on a bike of, of my life uh, to this day, and it always will be. Um, so it was, it was after that, it was as a process of coming back from that thinking, right, I don't ever want to feel that way again. I want to really understand what my brain is telling me and why sometimes I'm struggling on the bike and sometimes I'm having the best days of my life. This kind of, uh, the, the, it's like a pendulum from amazing to awful. And uh, that's where it all came from. So I started researching it. I started reading a lot of sports psychology. I ended up working with um, a sports psychologist and tried to pull it all together. And the mental cyclist, in the end, is my attempt to, to make what I learned, my experiences, accessible and practical and helpful to, to other recreational cyclists. And it's, it's kind of no more than that. It's not an authoritative textbook. Uh, I don't have letters after my name. Uh, I'm just a guy who ran away from a mountain and wants to find out why and and stop doing that stuff. Yeah, I I, I loved your uh, you you outline your story uh, or tell your story in the, in the uh, early pages of the book, and I I loved it because it's I mean it's so relatable. It's it's a it's a I think any of us who have spent any time uh, on the bike or or any other discipline in in a in a way that you know, in a capacity that is, that is challenging and, and there is a real opportunity for failure. We've, we've all had those, those internal dialogues and that conversation and we've, we've butted up against and been faced with the same things that you were faced with. And, and, um, you know, and, and hats off to you for, for, for figuring out, you know, how to, to improve yourself and, and to, to kind of get over that, that hump because I that's the real I mean that's the real crux of it right is that it's um it it takes some work internally it takes some work with ourselves it takes getting to know ourselves to understand what what variety of physical and mental preparation it's going to take to achieve whatever it is we 
we want to do. So I, I, I love that story. Cause I, I think, you know, replace Von two with anything else. And I think it's, you know, it's the same dialogue and same situation that most, most folks have had. Um, yeah, I, uh, so so early in the book, I want to I want to I want to break into a particular topic. In the early pages of the book, you talk about the um, there's two types of barriers. There's there's logistical barriers and there's psychological barriers. And you kind of lay this out early on. Logistical is um, is the stuff that we typically we we might blame uh, missing an opportunity on. Right? It's it's uh, I didn't get my kit together. I my bike isn't working properly. I you know maybe didn't get the sleep that I wanted. The list goes on and on and on, and we build these things up. The psychological, of course, is where the mental cyclist comes from. That's the wholly different kind of component. So can you can you talk about kind of how you arrived at at those you know understanding those differences? Because I don't think it's totally clear to a lot of people that those are different. Those are different things that we we kind of lump them all together, and they just become barriers or excuses or you know however we want to classify those things so what what did that kind of what did that process look and feel like for you to to get to those distinctions and then you know to be able to lean into the psychological piece yeah the distinction really is crystal clear but it wasn't to me and it's not to a lot of cyclists that I, I maybe chat to um, we tend to confuse these things. So by, by logistical, I, I simply mean things that can be addressed by straightforward means. So if you need a better bike, buy a better bike. You might not be able to afford to buy a better bike, but that's still a logistical problem. There's no psychological element to that. Um, if you need, um, if you need, even if you need to train more, I need to be physically fitter. That for me is a purely logistical problem. Train more, go to the gym more. Um, I need a challenge, set yourself a challenge. Uh, whatever it is, things that can in principle be relatively easily or, or can certainly be addressed in principle, even if they can't be overcome easily because there might be other problems there um, like lack of resources or, or lack of ability. The psychological problems are the things that we tell ourselves that do not have an easy fix. So for instance, the, you know, the, the voice of negative self-criticism that we all have chirping away inside our heads going you can't do this you're not good enough you'll never be good enough you shouldn't even try that for me is a, is a psychological barrier that's that's not a fix that's not something I can uh, go to a sports shop and, and buy some kit to get over um, or the limiting beliefs that we all have uh, the same kind of territory or even how we deal with you know stress on the road when something bad happens and uh and we can't handle it really well, and it ruins the ride, or it ruins our cycling. That's not a logistical problem for me. That that's psychological. That's how do you actually handle stress better? Um, so what I did was, uh, what what I actually did right at the beginning was just drew, drew a list of things that I kind of loved and hated about cycling, and looked at all the things I didn't like, and realized that um, a lot of them were logistical. So for instance, a simple one here: I live and cycle in Scotland most of the time. Um, I'm really thin-skinned. I suffer from the cold. I've never adapted to my natural climate. And I'm always cold on the bike uh, and frequently wet. So that was ruining cycling for me for far too long until I just saw it for what it was and bought the right kit. 
and accept that I might need to wear two pairs of gloves and three pairs of socks and overshoes and all the, the heavy raincoats and everything else. But at least then I can still ride and I can solve the problem. So there's a whole big list of things I didn't like about cycling. And then there were the, the other things, the, the, the kind of barriers that my, my mind was telling me that I couldn't do X, Y, or Z. And that was all internal. And there was no easy fix for it. Um, and that became the, the, the kind of, okay, wh what are these things? How can I categorize them in some kind of useful way that I can understand? And that ultimately became uh, The Mental Cyclist, which is an, an attempt to, to produce a structured program of self-exploration, um, you know, starting with things like self-esteem and understanding uh, willpower and understanding motivation and moving right on to challenge and threat states and, and, and setting yourself a, the ultimate challenge and if-then planning, all, all that kind of stuff. So it was a long process of, of kind of structuring it. And just, just accepting that logistical problems are there, that physical training, physical fitness, for me, is largely a logistical issue and not something I'm particularly concerned with here. And it's everything else, everything that your, your brain is telling you is a psychological issue. And that stuff is really damaging because it, it can just ruin your cycling. It can keep you off the bike. Um, and a lot of cycling, a lot of beginner recreational cyclists that I've had the chance to chat with um, suffer from these same kind of psychological barriers and blocks. And it's a shame. So it's it's such a, a shame. Um, so that, that the mental cyclist is this kind of program for understanding what's really happening in your head and finding ways to get over it so that you can you can do more on your bike. Yeah, so that that's, I mean, I think that's, that's a great explanation. And, and again, I think that, that distinction, like you said, it is crystal clear, but it's when we're in the thick of it, it's, it's hard to understand. I think for a lot of folks that, that there are different camps, you know, you, you just, you, you're dealing with that self doubt and, and that those, you know, kind of everything just compounds on itself. Um, that, that also uh, cues me to think about something else that you you outline um, earlier on in the book, which is this, um, the mind-body connection, right? So very similar to logistical and psychological being in kind of two camps, we have a tendency to to put the mind and the body in two different camps as well. And we say, well, that's, that's you know, body stuff, that's the training, the physical, and then the mind thing, that's a totally different component. Well, we, that's not the case. There is, they are, they are linked and one begets the other. So what did that, um, what's the importance of that for, for you and what, you know, what role does that, does realizing that connection, acknowledging it, and then working to understand how to, how to mate those two things up so that they work in concert, you know, what, what's the importance of that? Yeah, the, the distinction, um, I think is is between mind and body is, is kind of unarguable and the way that they relate together is probably very well understood. I, I came at this, curiously enough, from a philosophical background. Uh, that was my degree, so I'm a, an old Cartesian with mind-body stuff going on and trying to understand uh, in that context how they might work together. Um, in terms of sport and, uh, and, and sports psychology, the, I mean, the best example for me, uh, again, a personal one, sitting in a spin class every time, 
spin instructor screaming you can do it, turn up resistance. And somehow or other, my hand would go to the dial and it would turn it down when I thought I was absolutely at my limit. Now, the, the importance of understanding what was going on there is simply that, of course, I was not at my limit. I'm never at my limit in a spin class. I've never fallen off a bike, a spin bike, genuinely exhausted, gasping for, for breath. Um, you know, I just tell myself I am. I can't possibly go any harder. And that's the brain. That's my, my brain saying, you're going to turn that dial down. My legs, of course, could go harder. Of course, I could push my body, my body further. Now, for me, I, I didn't realize that for years. I thought the, the, the two things were the same. I didn't realize the distinction. I didn't realize, I used the phrase that it's your, your mind, not your muscles that push the pedals. It's, it's absolutely true. I think every physical training instructor knows that, and really good ones and good coaches will push you to physical limits that you don't think you can go to. Um, but for me, this was a kind of revelation. There are two things going on here. My mind's doing one thing, my body's doing another thing. And um, in the context of the mental cyclist, it was simply understanding and acknowledging that there are two things, two facets here. And um, if you understand what your mind is telling you, it really helps with what your body is able to do. And as a wider result of that, um, and really importantly, how you feel either in training or, or on the bike. So it's, it's just it's kind of getting a, a handle on that, that connection. Um, I don't profess any deep psychological understanding of what's really going on, a neurological understanding of it, but I do know that my mind and my body work in tandem, and I know absolutely that my mind is in control uh, and always will be. The, the mind, uh, you know, I, I've always, not always said, but, you know, come to the realization as I've, spent my career working with athletes that, you know, the, the body, the body follows the mind, right? It's never, it's never the other way around, right? So, so the thing that's going to collapse first is the mind. Now you might be tired. Certainly your body might be, there might be physical manifestations of that, of that fatigue or that self doubt or whatever, but it's the mind that's really leading the charge. And it's, it's the body's just kind of, you know, following, uh, you know, coming in line there. Um, and so one of the things that I that I like the most or I was kind of most struck by and also selfishly just excited that you mentioned it in the book uh, was the comparison uh, comparison to to others. So you call it the, yeah. the comparison trap, uh, I believe. And, and this is it's so so important and fundamental i think in in our journey as athletes no matter where you're at on the spectrum you talk about you know it, even if you're a top tier world if you're the best in the world the pressure is now even greater so no one no one gets away yeah. from the comparison trap it really actually only gets more intense as you as you you know improve or you you know your your field or your peers get more and more um uh, you know, capable. So, so I just want, yeah, I just love for you to, to go into a little bit of like what that felt like for you and why you feel like managing that comparison aspect of our sport is so critical because I, I think I could go on and on because, you know, we see it manifest itself, but I'd love to get your, your take on, uh, on just what that, you know, what, what that's like for, for you and, and how that's, you know, why that, why that was important to, to carve out a section in the book because you talk a, a good deal about it, which I think is great. 
Yeah, well, for, for me, the, for me, finally, the comparison trap is no longer because I simply don't do it anymore, and I have to check myself regularly. And uh, as soon as I see it creeping in, I just go, no, nope, not going back there. It's utterly self-defeating, futile, damaging. Um, for me, the yeah, we have we all have a tendency to compare ourselves to others in all walks of life, uh, throughout life, way beyond cycling or sport or anything else. And sometimes it can be healthy and sometimes uh, and not so healthy. Um, again, because all of this comes from personal experience, um, I was always comparing myself to everybody else. So, you know, there's a chap at the gym who is three years older than me, but fitter. Oh, how can that be? I, I need to be, I need to get, I need to get fitter than him. But I'm out cycling with my friends, my, my, my two good cycling pals, Ian and Frank. If we're going up a big hill, I really want to be first and I want to be nonchalant at the top of it as if it doesn't really matter, but it does, or it did really matter to me because we're all the same age and of a similar fitness. Um, when, if I was struggling on a ride with distance or with, uh, with climbing, whatever, I would really, really beat myself up about it and think I'm, I'm not working hard at this and I'm not good enough at this. Um, there's no sense to it for recreational cyclists, for for competitive athletes, professionals, yeah, there, there might be. Uh, that's your much more your territory. But I can categorically say that for recreational cyclists, where we're not competing for anything, where nothing's actually on the line, it is nothing but damaging. And you need to stop doing it. And it's actually really easy to stop doing it. Um, what I did myself uh, as a mental exercise but it is one of the, the written exercises in the book. It's really simple. Just be completely honest with yourself and write down who you compare yourself to and why. And look at it as, as a bit of paper and then tell yourself that is simply absurd because it doesn't matter. And that there's, no, that, that there's no situation in, in which it's actually useful. Um, the only comparison I, I believe and would argue that matters is with yourself. Um, and we talk in the book about the comparison between where you are now and where you might want to be. Not anybody else, not where you've been, um, not your friends, not your even your, your competitors if you are competing, but yourself, where do you want to be? What kind of cyclist would you, would you like to be? How would you design that kind of cyclist? And constantly compare your progress from your starting point to there. That to me makes sense as a comparative exercise. Anything else than that, to me, just feels like a, a, a trap that will um, make you miserable. Uh, certainly did with me. And it's also, just, it's also it's hugely, hugely liberating to just bin it, to just tear up that bit of paper and, uh, as, a, as, as an exercise in personal commitment, say, I'm not going to fall for this comparison trap anymore, ever. Boom. Job done. And you're, you're free. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a liberating exercise, you know. I, I when you when you when you finally, if you can arrive there, which I think is a good goal, to uh, to just mm -hmm. know that the only comparison is with yourself, and you know, and and I again, I you said you know recreational folks, but I you know I see it manifest itself, and I think it's a good exercise for people at all levels, you know, as a coach and you know a coaching team, we work with people at very high levels and people that are just getting out to enjoy fitness and. We see it. We see that comparison, man. You know, if you're at the start line or you're 
meeting your, you know, your friends at the coffee shop for a ride, that peer group that it's still there. And so I think understanding that it's just not, it's just not fruitful and it doesn't do any good to, to, to compare, you know, what that person's doing for training or how they feel or, cause I mean, everybody's different and everybody has great days and, and not so great days. And, and the quicker that we can understand that, the more enjoyment we'll get out of our, our sport, because it really is only, like you said, it's only damaging and it just gets in the way of, of fun and, and which is the end goal, you know, ultimately. Um, so I, I think I want to talk about motivation, uh, a little bit, uh, or I want to ask you about motivation. Cause you, you, you spend you spend a good deal of time outlining kind of the role intrinsic extrinsic motivation which we we talk a lot about on this podcast i think it's it's probably in my opinion one of the most kind of paramount distinctions and and, and mental kind of mapping tools that we have as athletes is to 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 write down intrinsic and extrinsic motivations but one of the one of the quotes that that stood out to me in the book was um, you said when you're sufficiently uh, motivated, you don't need willpower. Um, and I, yeah. that I, when I first read the book, you know, I, I underlined it and kind of started it, and and I was like, oh, that's that's a great way to to compartmentalize or to kind of capture motivation is that it's not something that we have to to kind of drum up if it's coming from the right place, right? I think a lot of times athletes feel like they have to will it into submission. They have to force a particular goal or they have to, it's a, becomes a job and a chore. And, and if, if, if the motivation comes from the right place, that willpower piece uh, comes alive. So yeah, just what is, what, what's the motivation component look and feel like for you and your experience and, and how have you seen that play out in, you know, recreational athletes and the folks that you're talking to? Um, I guess I see motivation almost as an alternative to, to willpower. Um, I've never been a great fan of using willpower uh, in any area of life because kind of by definition, it puts you in a, a state of conflict because um, willpower is what you need to summon up to do something you don't really want to do. So there's a there's a conflict there, um, and that might be you know it might be a ride in the rain or an FTP test during training, or it might be any aspect of life. But if you find yourself using willpower, it's because there's a conflict, and you've got a, a little voice in your head offering much sweeter, much more attractive alternatives in that moment, and you have to overcome it. It's a, it's a battle. And it's horrible being stuck in that kind of state of conflict all the time. Um, the revelation for me, nothing to do with cycling, uh, but I do uh, reference it in the book, was Alan Carr, um, who, who wrote the, the Easy Way to, to Stop Smoking. Now, I, I was a, a long-term smoker, and I tried lots of different methods to, to stop smoking, and ultimately, they all relied on willpower. And ultimately, and in my case, inevitably, failed. I would always relapse. I would always go back to it until I read that book. And although in some ways it's, it's kind of corny and, and oversimplistic, it has a, a really simplistic truth at the heart of it, which is if you don't want to do something, it doesn't take willpower not to do it. 
Um, so in the case of smoking, if you actually don't want to smoke anymore, you don't need willpower to stop smoking. It's the, the job's done. You, you don't want to do it, so you won't do it. Or you can flip that when you do want to do something. It doesn't take any willpower to do it. So the, the, the kind of alternatives, and for me, that was a massive shift when I realized that when I was genuinely motivated, particularly with extrinsic motivation with kind of an end goal, then everything kind of fell in, into place. And when I really examined my extrinsic motivation and it was lacking, that's when willpower would kick in, would come into play and I would inevitably fail. There's actually, and there's another Mont Von Two thing behind that, which is about three or four years, four years ago now probably, I decided I was going to join the crazy club, as it's called, and ride up Mont Von Two from all three different directions uh, within one day, which is a thing. Uh, it's a really, really tough thing, but I thought I've been up it, I've been up it three times now separately, and I thought I, I'll, I'll do that. So I set myself this goal, which was probably just within the realms of my physical ability with a lot of training. And I, I worked towards it. And there was one day, I remember it clearly, when I was really struggling on the turbo trainer. It was raining outside and it was winter and I was on the turbo. And I asked myself, why am I doing this? Why does climbing on to three times in a day actually matter to me? And that, where willpower is at play, is the, that's, that's the, um, the failing point right there. That's the doubt, the seeds of doubt. You can't question yourself because the minute you do, you start asking, well, actually, does it really matter to me? And I thought about it. Was it for the medal? Was it for the, the kudos on Strava? Was it for the chapeaus I'd get from my, my pals? Was it a personal thing because Vontu had been so important to me in cycling? Um, did I really, really care about cycling up this mountain three times in a day? And the answer was just no, actually, no. There's lots more things I could do that I would enjoy more. And actually, I knew I would struggle as well. First time going up would be fine. Second time, I'd probably hate it. But the third time, I'd be hating myself for, for being there. And because I wasn't sufficiently motivated, that, that goal wasn't genuinely meaningful or rewarding for me, um, I just stopped and got off the turbo and thought, no, nah, that's wrong. That's the wrong goal for me. My willpower is never going to get me through this. This is going to happen every time. I'm going to start self-questioning and I'm going to beat myself up. Um, and so I did something else instead. Uh, so, yeah, so understanding, again, this is what's going on in your head, understanding what actually really makes you tick, what drives you on, what stops you in your tracks, what's really meaningful to you, um, I, I think is essential and, and aligning your goals with your, your, your true motivation um, gets, you through, gets you through anything, whereas willpower ultimately will let you down. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love uh, you talk about one of the things you mentioned in the book was that you can um, you can change your goals, you know, which is what you just outlined is that you just because you've you've put it out there doesn't mean that it it has to stay. You know, you can always or, or should always be checking yourself against your goal and making sure that it's something that you want to do. Does it is it something you care about? Right. Just because you put it out there last year, maybe that's not the thing anymore. Maybe, you know, and I think I see that happen a lot with athletes of all abilities is that they, they put something on the calendar, they sign up for a thing and then that yeah. thing really loses its luster, but they stick with it and it, and it really drains their batteries, you know, it drains their, their mental and uh, emotional energy because they're not invested in, 
in that thing anymore. And, but they don't, they feel like if they, if they step away from that, then they failed. And, and then that has its own kind of, you know, series of cascading, you know, issues sometimes as well. But that, that leads me to, to think about you. It, you had talked about kind of just enjoyment and, and fun. And w- what role does, does, does fun very simply play or, or should it play when we think about these big, these big goals, these goals that are, you know, more aggressive that are going to take uh, some motivation and some willpower. And so how do we, how do we blend the fun piece in with, (laughs) with the times that are going to be hard? I mean, you know, we have to stretch ourselves. So there's inevitably tough moments. They're not always fun, but, but I feel like we have to come back to fun and enjoyment as our kind of home base. So how do we, how do we mix all those pieces together so that it's enjoyable? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in a perfect world, uh, your intrinsic and your extrinsic motivators would, would align perfectly. So you set yourself a goal that means something to you and everything you have to do to get there is, is fun in the process and, you know, happy days. Um, and, and that, of course, is perfectly possible and perfectly valid. But you're right, um, we do and we should set ourselves more ambitious goals that are beyond the comfort zone. And that will inevitably mean uh, training and, and doing things that are tough. Um, I think keeping an eye on why, on, on enjoyment, on the fun at every stage is actually super important to the point that if you actually don't like um, you know, high intensity, high intensity uh, interval training, for instance, if that's something that you just doesn't work for you, find alternatives rather than suffer. No matter how effective it might be, just, just find alternatives. Um, swim for three hours rather than doing HIIT training, whatever it, it takes. Um, really analyze your goal, the thing you're working towards in the context of it, of it being enjoyable. Is, the, is it going to be fun on the day? Is it something that's going to give you pleasure? If it doesn't, then you're probably more focused on performance than enjoyment. Uh, and in the book, we do kind of look at two sides to that. Of course, it's perfectly valid to be entirely performance-oriented. Um, and great, if, if that's your thing, then if performance goals are what you're striving for and you're prepared to, to suffer to some degree to get there, and that's okay for you, then great. But it's also okay to look at yourself and think, actually, I'm not particularly performance oriented. I just want to have fun in the saddle. I just want to ride on a flat road in the sunshine with a tailwind and a pint of beer at the end of it. And that will do me um, and and kind of train to get to that point. Um, I certainly spent many years focused on performance goals that didn't really matter to me. And that's not to say that sometimes when you actually do achieve something, you know, climbing in the Alps uh, or, or the Pyrenees, um, and you get to the top of the big mountains, um, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of enjoyment to be had in that, often type two enjoyment a bit later on. But if you do something that is, is just not fun at all, it's going to put you off cycling. Um, or, or any kind of sport, possibly forever, and it's completely avoidable. Again, it's all to do with self-awareness, exploring yourself, and getting to know yourself a bit better, becoming an expert in what motivates you and, and what doesn't, and, and kind of dealing with that. 
Um, just briefly, there's, there's one example in the book where I was on a, a sportif climbing a, a hill called the Bialachnabach in Scotland, which is, um, I, think, I think it's the highest mountain pass in Britain or, or possibly Europe. It's, it's rated 11 out of 10 somewhere, and it, it's a horror show. And I was doing it in what felt like a hurricane. We're getting blown off the bikes, um, driving rain, miserable, freezing cold. And this was towards the beginning of the sportif. And it was one of these, <laughs> I sound a terribly miserable cyclist, but it was just one of these moments of revelation where I stopped, couldn't get back on the bike and thought, why am I doing this? Why am I doing it to myself? I don't care enough to put myself through this. I don't care about completing the sportif. Um, so that, that was just another moment where I came back and wrote a list of things I love and things I hate and promised never, ever, ever to have a bad day like that again. And these days, I wouldn't. If the weather turned the way it did that day, I just wouldn't show up and I'd actually be okay with that. Doesn't mean um, I don't want to set performance goals and, and achievements. I do. I absolutely do. But I'm just not going to suffer to that degree for something that isn't in the end fun. That makes any sense. No, it does. And I, I think, I mean, you bring up a good point that you can be, you can, you can have performance goals and you can be motivated and driven and all the things to, 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 you know, maximize your potential. And, and those things don't have to come at the expense of enjoyment. I think those so often, you know, it can be kind of conflicting with athletes is that, oh, in order to, in order to achieve these things that I must have to, to put the enjoyment piece aside, it must just involve me showing up and, and being miserable. And there is a line there and, and, and you bring up a good point that that line is different for everyone, you know, that it's okay that whatever value you derive from that activity, you, you know, it's okay to not go on the other side of that line to, to say, yeah, this is, this is, now this is not providing value and enjoyment, and I'm okay with not not engaging in this part of the, the activity um, for the sake of longevity, for the sake of coming back to the sport that I enjoy. I don't want this to be so damaging, you know, that I'd never want to see my bike again, right? And I think you see that happen all the time. I'm sure you, you know people as well that, you know, they're like, well, I, I'm not... I'm not, you know, I don't want to touch my bike again. I don't want to touch my, you know, running shoes, whatever the sport is, um, because it they had such a bad, a bad experience. Um, so yeah. a little bit in that same vein, um, another aspect of the book that I thought was really interesting is um, you you outline uh, guilt versus shame, and this is another mm. piece that I. Uh, I think is really the language is is important and it's something that I don't hear uh, talked about a lot, but I thought it was great. So you talk about guilt or you, you bitch and you actually, I believe you quote uh, Brene Brown. I think guilt is something that's positive. It helps yeah. us understand when we, you know, can, can be a better person or do better. Shame has no good. Uh, there's nothing good about shame. Shame is only, damaging so so what is what is that how does that manifest itself I, I would argue that's not typically language that we equate with uh with endurance sports you know that would be more on the you know some of the kind of uh psychological you know aspects of our other parts of our lives um 
so what what is the guilt versus shame piece? What does that mean for 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 athletes, for cyclists? I think it's uh, as you say. Uh, I mean, guilt is is generally a, a negative feeling about something you've done, whereas shame is a more all pervasive feeling about who you are and, and not being happy with that. Now, I I don't I, I don't imagine that everybody has a, a deep rooted self of uh, sense of shame about themselves. I, I very much hope not. But I think when we listen to some of the self-criticism that we we can put ourselves through some of that kind of relentless um putting ourselves down if you listen to that voice and actually if you write write some of it down um a lot of it isn't about guilt it's not because we've done something that we should feel bad about it's just that we actually don't feel terribly good about ourselves and there's there's maybe there are degrees of shame i'm, I'm sure but i think at some level there there's a feeling of um i'm not good enough I'm, I'm mildly or slightly or, or deeply ashamed of myself. And that manifests itself in all sorts of uh, negative self-talk and, and self-criticism that is absolutely debilitating. Um, now, feeling bad about ourselves is be a huge subject and is ultimately is not something that we should do. And we need to find ways to address that so we don't, we don't, feel, we don't have any feelings of shame about ourselves. We shouldn't. Guilt, sure, do something wrong, feel guilty, change your behavior, get over it. Shame is not something you can get over. It's much, it's much deep, more deep-rooted and it's, uh, it's thoroughly debilitating. So I, th- I think really it's just something to, to recognize, to analyze, to think, is, this, is what I'm telling myself about myself coming from some feelings of shame? And if so... Let's get them out in the, on the table. Let's drag them out there and work out what these are and address them because it's, it's going to be very, very hard to get get beyond them uh, and, until you see it for what it is. I think a lot of times, you know, the we, I don't know, I, I just think that's an interesting kind of dichotomy or, or breakdown and that struck me because I see, it, I see it happen with a lot of athletes that they, you can get stuck in this negative feedback loop where you, uh, you see it happen, for instance, with a missed, missed training session, right? So you, you want to do a, a ride on the turbo on a, on Tuesday and things get busy, whatever happens, maybe you don't have motivation, the weather's not right, whatever it is, you miss that. And that really, I mean, something as simple as that can set off this, uh, there's guilt, right? You feel guilty or maybe you feel shame um, about missing that. And then that, you know, rolls into the next day where you might have a harder time motivating and, or you feel like you need to do, you know, extra. Um, and I think kind of naming that and understanding the role that that plays for each individual is, is a very important exercise. Um, but because it can be, like you said, it can be very damaging and it can be, um, it's, you know, it's, it's something that's just obvious. It's not fruitful either. You know, when we get stuck in these, these negative loops and we feel guilty about, uh, about our behavior as athletes, that doesn't, that doesn't, you know, take us any closer to our, to our goals. Um, so with, well, and so with that in mind, one of the, that, that also causes stress, and you uh, you outlined stress really well, and that's something that we 
you know, as, as a coach, I help athletes mm. manage all the time, right? The stress that our goals or the pursuit of our goals or full potential kind of puts on, on us, right? It becomes a very stressful endeavor. Oftentimes we, you know, and, and that might not be, uh, what we want to accomplish or, or the, how we want it to manifest itself, but it can be very stressful. Um, so one of the, you say, you know, what causes stress is, is an emotional reaction to a situation. So stress is, stress is how we respond. It's not, um, it's not a, it, it's not something that's put on us. It's something that we manifest. Um, yeah. so I'd be interested to, you know, how did that, how do you manage, you know, or how do you kind of recommend athletes manage stress, um, you know, in relation or in route to that, the things they want to accomplish? Cause I think it's inevitable. Um, I don't know anybody who hasn't been stressed about the thing they want to do on the bike or the training they need to get done or the nutrition they feel like they need to, you know, all of the pieces and parts, there's a lot to manage. Um, so yeah, how, how do, how do we, how do we manage the stress part of, of the, of the whole ordeal? (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, stress is a killer. Um, I tend to look at it in terms of, um, you're, you're on your bike, something bad happens. It could be, puncture could be a crash could be your bike brakes could be anything it could be it starts raining and you don't have a a jacket now we typically if we analyze what happens here let's say you have a puncture and suddenly you're angry and shouting at the stars and blaming the cycling guards and having a miserable time if we analyze that ourselves typically we'll think there are three things happening here there's the situation so something happened there's the way we feel about it um angry and there's the the kind of the behavioural reaction to that. What do we do? Um, and you know, if we, we get stuck, and we maybe start shouting, or we start swearing, or we just have a, a kind of miserable time. The, there's a missing link in that, which is the, the the bridge between the situation and how we feel about it. Um, and that link is the perception, how we perceive the situation. That's what leads to the feeling. That's what leads to the reaction and, and the behavior. And that perception often has a value judgment attached to it. Um, so we see a puncture and part of our brain, subconscious brain is going, that is a bad thing. Therefore, we feel bad about it. And therefore, we, we behave kind of badly. That perception, that value judgment, that that um, something we put on situations is it's good, it's bad, it's right, it's wrong. We can analyze that in quite some detail, uh, which we do in the book. And ultimately, value judgments, these kind of binary decisions, serve no purpose in sport or, or in cycling. A puncture is not good or bad. It might be unfortunate and it might have consequences, but it's not, it's not a moral thing. It doesn't need, it doesn't require a value judgment. Um, so when, when you split it out further, you say, okay, a situation, here's my perception of that situation. That has created a feeling um, and that has led to a reaction. We can address all four of, the, of these in positive ways. Um, I, I generally do it from the, and I, I always have done, I start with my reaction and I just retrain my behavior. Um, there's a really interesting 
um, thing that happens here when you talk to people sometimes where they blame it on their personality. So if, if you describe a situation and they fly off the handle and they go a bit nuts, they say, oh, yeah, I'm just hot-headed. It's just the way I am. It's just my personality. Um, it's not. I don't, I don't believe that. I, I, I don't buy that for a second. I never have. And that's actually coming more from a philosophical than a psychological perspective. I don't think your personality is something that you are bound to. Um, ultimately, the way you react is a choice, and you can choose to react differently. You might need help with that. Um, exposure therapy, for instance, can, can help with phobias, and there are tools, techniques, strategies for, for dealing with that. But your reaction is not embedded in some immutable personality that, that excuses you from any kind of sense of responsibility. Um, so the way, ways of just, just at that level of the reaction, okay, something's happened, I have a perception, I have a feeling, I'm behaving like this, stop yourself there, check yourself there, and think, could I behave differently at this moment? Would it be more helpful to just accept that something has happened and to, to figure out what to do next rather than to be angry or, or miserable? Um, the feeling bit that comes before that, uh, I, I think, again, it's, it's almost a kind of, you need a, a moment of mindfulness where you can step back from the feeling and acknowledge, okay, I'm feeling disappointed, angry, frustrated, whatever it is, and just analyze it rationally. Okay, I, I have those feelings. I'm not defined by those feelings. There's more to me than that. Are these feelings, are they helpful to me right now in this moment? Um, are they necessary? Could I, could I not have this feeling? Could I move away from it or beyond it? Could I just park it? Um, and actually, is it rational for me to be feeling so frustrated about something that's, that's just happened? The minute you do that, um, the minute you step back and you put a little bit of distance between yourself and the feeling that you're having, it, it can kind of fall into place quite quickly and you can change the feeling or you can park the feeling and that immediately affects the way you react and your, your behavior going forward. Uh, and you're, suddenly you're not stressed anymore because the stress has gone away. You've seen it for what it is and you move beyond it. Going back at, the, at an earlier stage, you've got the perception where the value judgments come in. That takes a little bit more thinking through. Um, ultimately, in, in the mental psychosis, what we suggest is just, just don't do it. Do not attach binary thinking or value judgments to your cycling because it adds no value whatsoever and it just leads to stress. Um, and then we're right back at the situation. So something happens. How do you deal with it? Well, a bit of mindfulness with it, the feeling can help, a bit of retraining your brain and practice with how you react. And uh, suddenly a lot of things can, can be a lot less stressful than they otherwise would be. Um, which is generally a good thing because you can enjoy your cycling a lot more and you're, you have a more robust approach to dealing with the stuff that can happen and always will happen without being kind of miserable about it. Uh, that, that for me, again, personally, all of this is, is kind of my personal experience. Learning that and practicing that utterly changed my cycling from being this kind of world-class catastrophist. Everything's going to wrong, go, go wrong and I'm going to hate it. And I'm going to be miserable to dealing with whatever happens with a smile and um, ideally a bit of if-then strategic planning to get me out of it and just handling it and just being okay with it. And it's fine. This happened. I'll deal with it. What do I have to do now? I'll do that then and, and moving on. And it, it, the stress kind of just dissipates.
Well, if we can, if we can do anything to, to dissipate stress, I think that that's a, that's a, that's a good thing for, you know, for, for our, for our athletic endeavors, but also in, in life. And, you know, I, I, that binary piece was so, I, I, you know, I don't know that I had ever until I, maybe I knew it or I didn't, but I was like, oh yeah, there's not, it's not, it's not good or bad. Like it doesn't make any sense. Like you said to, to, or like you outlined to ascribe this binary thinking to a situation that's totally out of our control. Right. It's, it's, it's just unfortunate. It's, it maybe didn't, it's not what we expected. It's, it's not how we wanted the day to go or the week or whatever, but, but it isn't good or bad. It, it is, it is what it is. And we have, if you can just for a second, remove that, that thinking. And I think, you know, I thought about this specifically, and I actually put this into practice, you know, when you're, when you're in the middle of say a long ride and you, you have these natural dips where you, you know, you, you don't, you might not feel as good as you would like to. Now, typically you come out the other side of that, but you have these moments where, oh, I don't feel good. I, maybe I'm not eating right. Uh, maybe I didn't train enough, but you know, and you start to very quickly just for a second, step back and, and say, this isn't, this isn't a good or a bad feeling. I just have to navigate this so that I can get out the other side. And just the awareness that it's not, it's not black or white. It is, it is, it is what it is. And it's a nuanced situation. I think that is, that's a game changer. If you can just know that that language shouldn't be applied or it isn't fruitful to apply that language, that changes everything. You know, it really does. It's just as simple as saying, yeah, it's fine. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't have to call this thing anything. I just have to deal with it. I have to understand how I could cope with it and I move through it and it's not stressful. It's just, it's just as what it is. Um, I want to talk about, um, goal setting. You, mm. you talk about goals at early part of the book. And then the final third part of the book, uh, is a, a roadmap to accomplishing those goals and, a um, uh, working through how to, to achieve those. So, you know, one of the things you, you, you kind of state is there's, there's no point in setting out to do something. Um, if you don't know why you want to do it. Um, and, that that why is 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 a critical piece of the puzzle and you have to come back to that and you have to work through it and you have to understand your motivators a lot you know that some of the things we've been talking about so um wh- what is how how does that goal setting piece how does setting a goal that is cuz you also say you know don't don't be lukewarm on your goal you know you need to be excited about it you need to be kind of all in. It needs to be something that, that feels engaging. So how do we, how do we use that goal setting piece to, to drive the other things that we talked about motivation and, and, you know, all the components. Um, what, what is that? What role does that play? How do we, how do we uh, use that Uh, productively? I think is the real, you know, cause that's not always the case. So how do we, how do we make sure that's a positive component versus a, a stressor like we just talked about? Well, the, the book is written, um, the, the, the main part of the book is this 12-stage uh, mental cycling manifesto, which, which culminates in commit to your challenge. Uh, exactly as you say, it's, it's find a goal and commit to it wholeheartedly. And the promise is that you, you will 
uh, you will have the best time ever on your bike and it's going to be uh, life-changing and, and, and totally amazing. To get there, the, the structure of the book is designed, and I hope it works, is designed to develop self-expertise in stages, in, in a, a logical order where you're going deeper and deeper into what's really going on in your mind when you ride and when you set yourself goals. So that towards the end, if it's all making sense, if it's all kind of congealing for you, you should be in the right kind of mindset to, to set yourself uh, a serious goal. And we, we talk about the difference between challenge and threat states. You should be within the challenge zone. So it's within your resources, but right at the edge of it. Um, so there is a, there's a kind of physical aspect to this as well. What I do in the final chapter is a bit of a flip because we always, always talk about and think about do goals. I'm going to do this, do that. I'm going to climb this mountain, sign up for that sportive. I'm going to ride around this planet. You know what I mean? Um, it's always what we're going to do. And ultimately, to be with, with mental cycling, it's the wrong question. Um, the right question, or I, I suggest in this final chapter, is how do you want to feel? And that should drive everything. So we can call it a field goal or a B goal. And we go through a process, it's kind of a short visualization. There are lots of ways of doing it, but it's it's getting into the feeling in, in your head to, to visualize and imagine the best you could possibly feel on your bike in the moment and at the, at the end of an achievement and to capture that and define it, um, which we do in the exercises. That should be your goal, that, that feeling of being the, you know, the perfect cyclist in the perfect world, um, feeling at the top of your game. Uh, it might be how you look. It might have all sorts of aspects in it. It might be your, your weight and your fitness. It could just be the feelings of exhilaration. It, it's a complex picture, but it's ultimately it's designing the cyclist that you want to be and how you want to feel. That, I suggest here, is your starting point for figuring out what you're actually going to do, not the other way around. Um, and that, that climbing one, two, three times in a day that I, I talked about earlier, that was very much a do-goal, plucked out of thin air because I'd heard of it. Um, I wasn't considering at all how I would feel at the end of that other than probably knackered and miserable. Uh, and now any time I, I think about any goals, it's it starts with how do I want to feel doing this and at the end of it, what kind of cyclist do I, do I want to be? And when you do that, when you find, when, when you really understand how you want to feel and you find the right do goals that are going to get you there, everything else should fall in place. That's the idea. When you're training for it, you're, you're, you're motivated, thoroughly motivated. You understand what your intrinsic motivators are and what your stress factors are and how to, to mitigate against them. Uh, you, you've explored your limiting beliefs and your negative self-talk and self-criticism. Um, you've put in place kind of if-then plans for dealing with stuff that might go wrong. And you just mentally, you're very much in a, in a stronger place to work towards it. Um, and the idea, it, it all comes together beautifully and seamlessly and, uh, and you become a, a mental cyclist at the, the top of your personal mountain, feeling the best you, you've ever felt. Uh, and part three of the book, as you know, is a kind of structured 12-week um, journal journaling process towards that where the focus is entirely on all of these different bits of mental cycling and how you're progressing and how you're feeling doesn't mention the gym once doesn't mention terrible doesn't matter what you're doing physically that's that's 
other territory. It's all about how your feelings are, are progressing. Well, that's, uh, again, I can't, uh, I, I think that the topics that you that you cover in the book are, are amazing. Um, I, I think it's such a productive exercise to go through the book, think about and write down and, and, and go through that process. Again, that's, that's, you know, very much why, uh, this podcast exists. Um, because I, I think that the, the, that those exercises using that type of the, the, the appropriate language, thinking about things through those lenses is, um, is, is critical for, uh, for success, no matter how you, you quantify or qualify that. So, um, Thanks so much, Kyle, for for writing the book and for taking the time to outline some of these things uh, for us on the podcast. And uh, I I, uh, I can't thank you enough. It was a, it was a real pleasure. Oh, the pleasure is mutual, Taylor. Thank you so much. Um, you're a very kind and generous interviewer, and I, I deeply appreciate that.